Oh, most people would look back on this past year and consider it an all-time low point for hoping in mankind to solve any of our biggest problems or to make progress towards any kind of hopeful, peaceful world together. And yet, intelligent people keep saying that we can do it without God. Just four years ago, Yuval Harari, who serves as a public intellectual, historian, and professor, wrote a best-selling book that he titled Homo Deus. In Latin, that means human God. And in the book, he argues that in ancient times, people turned to God and trusted in God only because they could not control the world they were living in. But he says, now we have the control they never had. And so in the introduction of his book, he says, and I quote, at the dawn of the third millennium, humanity wakes up to an amazing revelation. Most people rarely think about it. But in the last few decades, we have managed to rein in famine, plague, and war. These things have been transformed from incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into manageable challenges. Listen to what he says next. We don't need to pray to any God to rescue us. We know quite well what needs to be done, and we usually succeed in doing it. Well, I can't help but wonder, huh? I can't help but wonder as we close out 2020 with a worldwide pandemic that showed human beings just how we're not in control and don't see everything coming, as well as horrific human conflict on multiple levels that has polarized our nation and our world more than ever. What would Harari say as the dust settles on 2020? And how would he explain? How would he explain surveys that continue to show profound levels of discontentment, depression, drug abuse, anger, fear, anxiety, and loneliness that grips record numbers of people in the most advanced societies. It appears that all this so-called progress has not solved our biggest problem. And so Christians like me are not the only ones critical of comments like Harari's. Andrew Sullivan, the British-American author and political pundit, says this. As we have slowly and surely attained more progress, we have lost something that undergirds all of it. Meaning, cohesion, and a different, deeper kind of happiness than the satiation of all our earthly needs. You hear? He's putting his finger right on it. There is, listen, there is a different, deeper kind of happiness that people are looking for that will never be satisfied and satiated by all your earthly needs being met because we are spiritual beings Created in the image of God, which means we hunger and long for more than what can be found in this world. 
That's not going to be solved by your earthly needs alone being met. And so listen to me. Take heart, Christians. Take heart. Christianity has never been more relevant than it is today. Christianity is not some irrelevant thing that's antiquated and dusty and off to the margin. No, no, no. And it's not going anywhere, you guys. It is not fading away. Christianity has never been more relevant because the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ took place because of this very problem that politicians and philosophers, educators and economists, as well as revolutionaries, keep running into but cannot solve with human reasoning and resources alone. How do we sustain hope and any kind of meaningful purpose in a world that is so shattered and broken with sin? Christianity is the answer to this problem. Because Easter is the glorious message and the eternal hope That things can be made new. Every human being, you don't have to be a Christian to have a longing for things to be made new, for things to be made right, for things to change. Easter is the glorious message and the eternal hope that things can be made new because we can be made new through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I hope you realize Our neighborhoods will not change. Our nation will not change. This world will not change apart from people being made. Legislation will not get it done. Piles of money will not get it done. Psychiatry and psychology will not come up with enough pharmaceutical (laughs) pharmaceutical meds to get it done. It just isn't going to happen. Easter's the glorious message and the eternal hope. That answers this problem. Where do I find hope? And how do I find meaning and purpose in this kind of world? It's only as people are made new in Christ. That neighborhoods are made new. And nations are made new. And our world, Christianity, has never been more relevant or necessary and needed. And so, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We're going to do what you're never supposed to do with a book. I love reading books. But you're never supposed to jump to the end and read the final chapter. As a church family, we're going through the book of Luke, but today we're going to do that. We're going to go to the end to Luke chapter 24. So, spoiler alert. If you don't know how this ends, buckle up. Because we're going to get there again in a, in a couple of years. But today you get a peek at the end. Luke 24. Luke chapter 24, you follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. 
and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. In the time that remains, I want to answer the question, because it's a good one. I want to answer the question that the angel is asking the women at the tomb. Why do you seek the living among the dead? You see, Jesus did not keep this a secret, you guys. If you read the Gospels, you'll see over and over and over. He told them, he talked about it. I am going to die and rise again. I'm going to die and rise again. But they did not, point number one, they did not expect the miracle of the resurrection. In fact, they came to the tomb. You'll you'll hear people say, oh, Christianity only exists today and talks about a resurrection because the disciples wanted to believe that and they spread that story. Right here in our text, it shows they did not believe that. They did not expect it. They were not expecting this because it didn't match what they already thought. You see, how could they not hear him? Think about how we are today. When someone already is locked on to what they think and want to be true, often they do not hear what is being said. They were not expecting the miracle of the resurrection. They went to the tomb expecting to find a dead body. You say, Brad, how do you know that? Verse 1, it says they were taking with them spices they had prepared. They weren't about to do a big Easter lunch, you guys. That's talking about they intended to embalm his dead body. They thought there'll be a dead body and we're going to embalm this dead body with spices. Here's what's going on. Even though they loved him and even though they followed him, many of them left everything to follow them, follow him. They loved him. They followed him. They still thought they still thought he was just like every other leader who said some great things, did some great things, but then died, leaving them nothing more than a great example to follow. Now, some of you sitting here right now may be making that same mistake. That was a mistake. That was a mistake they made. And some of you sitting right here might be making the same mistake, believing that Jesus is a great teacher, a wonderful example, and a kind man. So you'd say he's worthy of some honor, no doubt. You'd be a fool to deny that Jesus existed. You'd be a fool to deny that he's not one of the most unique persons that ever existed in history. But I want you to know you're still missing it if you've settled into, oh, he was a great teacher, wonderful example, kind man, worthy of some honor. But I could never believe in the resurrection from the dead. Are you crazy? Because only primitive, gullible people like those people back then could ever believe something like resurrection from the dead. Listen to me. Be careful. Be careful. Here's what you need to realize. In that Greco-Roman world and culture, they did not believe in the resurrection any more than people do today. They thought it was just 
as ridiculous. If you read through the Gospels after Jesus rises again and ascends to heaven and Christianity begins to spread, they begin to go around the Roman Empire city by city by city sharing this good news of forgiveness and hope and it would all go well. You can see these sermons. It would all go well until they mentioned resurrection from the dead and the crowd would go crazy, mocking. It would, it would interrupt the sermon. Many times they didn't get to finish their sermon. Remember Paul standing before Festus, a king, and he's defending what's going on in his life. And when he got to the resurrection, Festus said, Paul, because Paul had the equivalent of a Ph.D. degree, you guys. Paul, your great learning has driven you mad. And Paul said, oh, Festus, I am not mad. And King Herod sitting next to you knows what I'm talking about because these things did not happen in a corner. You guys, these things didn't happen in a corner. It was known. It was known, but they did not want to believe it any more than people today want to believe it. In fact, in our own passage that I just read, the apostles, right? These are the apostles, the guys that are supposed to lead this thing. Those that were closest to Jesus Christ, heard him the most, saw him the most, spent the most time with him. Our passage says the apostles themselves thought the women were crazy when they brought news of an empty tomb. Look at verse 11. They didn't say, oh yeah, that's what he said. That's what we knew was going to happen. No. Look at verse 11. These words seem to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. That word for idle tale in the Greek right there is a Greek word that means incoherent, unintelligible, and utterly foolish. The apostles, the apostles looked at the women and said, you're out of your minds and you're talking total nonsense. They did not expect the miracle of the resurrection. Now, you're saying, Brad, how is this helping Christianity? And you want us to believe. I'll tell you how it's helping. Because you hear it said, oh, this is just what they wanted to believe anyway. And they spread it even though it wasn't true. And they lied that the body was gone. They did not expect the miracle of the resurrection. Even the apostles. So here's the real question. What, what changed the apostles and so many others from rejecting the message of the resurrection to proclaiming it and spreading it all over the Roman Empire in less than 70 years? No other religion has ever spread like Christianity. No other religion has ever gotten traction in multiple diverse cultures. What? What changed the apostles and so many others from rejecting it to proclaiming it, even at the very cost of their lives? I'll tell you what. They saw him for themselves. Because Jesus appeared to multitudes. You realize Jesus appeared to multitudes over a period of 40 days after his resurrection. Which is why the Apostle Paul, when he wrote his letter to the Christians in Corinth, said this in 1 Corinthians 15. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared, he's going to name names, that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once. Key phrase coming. Most of whom are still alive. Here's my point. 
Paul is writing the letter to the Corinthians 20 years, only 20 years after these events took place. You can go talk to these people. You can find hundreds of people alive who saw him, most of whom are still alive. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and lastly, he appeared also to me. They did not expect the resurrection. So you have to say, what caused it to spread? What caused them to begin to proclaim it at the cost of their lives? They did not expect the resurrection, but it's because of point number two. They didn't understand the purpose of his death. They didn't expect the resurrection because they never understood the purpose of his death. That's basically what the angel is telling them. After his rhetorical question, why do you seek the living among the dead? He basically begins to clarify for them the purpose of Jesus' death. And he clarifies it with one little word in verse 7. That is the controlling word for everything else the angel says. Look at verse 7. It's the little word, must. Must. He must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. And you can put the word must in front of every other verb. And must be crucified and must rise again. In other words, you guys, Jesus had to die. It was not an accident. This wasn't things got out of hand. Jesus had to die. Jesus came to die. He left the glories of heaven. Here's what you need to understand. He left the glories of heaven and took on flesh and came into our world not to be an incredible example that would inspire us, but to be a savior who would die for us. Big difference. Those two purposes are very different and they're attached to two very different concepts of our condition. If you think we are just a little weak and need a a little bit of help, then example and inspiration would be enough, right? I got it pretty much together. I got a lot of gifts. I got a lot going for me. I'm really a good person. Just give me an example and inspire me and watch what I can do. But if you believe that human beings are helpless and are actually desperately sinful and broken and confused and hateful and selfish, then you would conclude example and inspiration will never be enough. We need a savior. He came to be a savior, not an example. He came to die for us, not just inspire us like some Hallmark card. His ultimate mission and purpose all along. His ultimate mission and purpose all along was to solve our biggest problem. The sin problem that would condemn every one of us to hell. And leave us separated from God and everything good forever. He came to address that problem. Which is why he prayed the way he did. Which is why Jesus prayed the way he did on his final night, the night of his arrest and crucifixion, when he said in John 12, he was fully God and he was fully human, which means he had the same fears and thoughts we would have about a horrific death. He knew what was coming. John 12, he prays, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this 
purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Oh, Jesus had glorified the Father when he fed the hungry. He glorified the Father when he opened blind eyes. He glorified the Father when he straightened lame. He glorified the Father when he touched a casket in the middle of a funeral that they would not do. You'd be considered unclean. He just touches it and raises the young man from the dead. He glorified the Father, glorified the Father, but he never glorified the Father more than when he gave his life to save people created in the image of God. That's when he glorified the Father most. Because you can have your belly filled with some bread and say, wow, that's amazing. Didn't that start off as three little loaves? How did he do that? And still die and go to hell. You can say, oh my goodness, I've never seen people and colors and sky and flowers and green grass before. And now I do. I was blind, but now I see. And still die and go to hell. But you see along the way before you get there. He did not come just to heal and feed. He came to solve our biggest problem. To be a savior. That's why all through the gospels, you'll see him saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. What are you talking about? They didn't understand this. Now he's saying, for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus came to die for us and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came to be a savior, not just an inspirational example. But now, right now, I'm convinced some of you right now are insulted by this kind of talk, right? You're you're a little bit insulted because you're convinced you're convinced about yourself. You have a view about yourself that you don't think you need a savior. I'm not that bad, Brad. I can look at all kinds of people worse than me. Inspiration and education alone would be enough to get me on the right path and keep me there. My friend, the history of mankind tells a different story and proves otherwise. We always think, oh, those wicked people, put me in power, put me in place. I would do better. Somebody over and over and over and over again, it is proven. Here's what you need to understand. Our biggest problem is not how. How do I overcome the evil that is all around me in our world and culture? This past year, haven't we had a sense of this? Oh, my word, there's evil. There's hate. There's bad people. But we tend to think And I'm not one of them. How do I overcome the evil in our world? Let me help you. The biggest problem is how do I overcome and control the evil that rises up from within me? We, we, our world still talks as if culture and society is this separate thing that just happens. But people are good. News alert. Society is framed and formed and infused by people. It's people that make the culture wicked. It's people. We are the problem. That's why when you take people and put them in a brand new neighborhood with everything clean and everything nice, does it stay that way? No, it becomes bad because we're bad. It's not the evil around us. It's the evil within us that we need help. How do I overcome? I hope maybe you're young and maybe you're naive and maybe you're just arrogant. But I hope you are surprised by you on a regular basis. 
I can't believe I would think that. I can't believe I just said that. I can't believe I just did that. If you don't have moments like that, you're not paying attention. Ask people living close to you. Have I done anything heinous that hurt you? They'll help you out. Yes. They're so waiting for you to ask. Your opinion of yourself does not match what others see about you. And it certainly doesn't match what God sees about you. And yet he loves you. He loves you. You don't need to become better to earn his love. That's what's so amazing about this, you guys. He loves you now. In your mess, in your sin, in your hate. And that's what Easter is about. That's what Christmas is about. He sent his son into this world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. To rescue a people for himself and make us new in Christ. This is very different between religion. There's all kinds of religions and it's still all about you. It's still just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Religion is a list. When you understand Christianity and you understand why Jesus came and you understand why he had to die and rise again, then you know it's all about what Jesus has done, D-O-N-E, for me. Because I could never do enough of the right things. We are so broken, so lost, so blind to ourselves, so hateful and selfish, we could never consistently follow an example. Just give me a good example and I'll get there. Just cheer me on. We needed a savior. He came to be a savior. But you have to be willing to humble yourself to say, you know, sometimes people say, it can't be that easy, Brad. It can't be that easy. You just put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Here's how I would say it. It's simple. Even a child can understand it. It's not easy because here's what's in the way. Pride and your view of yourself. When you don't think you're that bad, you don't think you need a savior. I just need an example and some inspiration. There's what you gotta get past, my friend, that you need a savior, that his life and death and resurrection was for you, not some other bad person, you. And so let me just stop and uh, explain the gospel. That's a word that we use as Christians. Oh, the gospel, good news of the gospel. They went around preaching the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is simply shorthand for this. All of us are sinners by nature and by choice. You don't become a sinner after you're born. I've got a new grandchild. Some of you have heard me mention it. I love him dearly. When he smiles at me, my whole world lights up. But he is a sinner. He was born a sinner. Now, he's my favorite sinner. He's ahead of you guys. Trust me. But he's a sinner. It's not like he's going to start hanging out with some of your kids and learn to be wicked. It's right here. It's right here. He's already arching his little back and saying, I will. I will not do what you want. He's a sinner now. We're all born sinners. And then we continue to choose it and prove it as we live longer and longer. And so here's what you need to understand. God saw the problem from the very beginning in Genesis 3. The problem of sin and promised to do something about it. To send a redeemer, to send a savior. But God knew we would not be interested in the solution. Savior. Unless we knew our true condition. And so he gave us the Ten Commandments. 
Here's what happens to people with the Ten Commandments. They think God gave us the Ten Commandments for you to try to keep them and earn your way to heaven. That's how people talk. I say, do you think you're going to heaven when you die? Yep. I try to, and at least they're honest enough to throw the word try in there. I try to keep the Ten Commandments. Nobody can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. We, we love to focus on the ones we haven't broken and ignore the ones we break daily. I mean, he says, thou shalt not covet. Do you ever look at your neighbor's car and think, that should be my car? We're harder than him. That's sick. I mean, covet, covet, lie. Like, we focus on, well, I haven't done those big things. He gave us the law so you would actually see your need for a Savior, that you would see how you fall short. The Ten Commandments show us that nobody can keep these. And so Jesus came, and he's the only one that perfectly obeyed God. Never sinned. Kept all the law. And then went to the cross in payment for our sins. Not his, because he had none of his own. He became a sin substitute. Because on the cross... The worst part of the cross was not, oh, the nails pierced through his wrist and his feet. It was horrific, but lots of people, you realize, read history, lots of people died by crucifixion. I'm not trying to downplay it. It was one of the worst ways to die because you died of asphyxiation when you finally could no longer push up on your feet to get a breath and you're crumpled like this. It was a horrible way. The Romans had perfected one of the most cruel ways to die. But sometimes when they conquered another nation, they would line the streets with crucifixions all the way down it. They would crucify hundreds of people at once to remind everyone, we rule, you don't. So Jesus is not the only one who died by crucifixion. What is unique to Jesus is nobody else, as they hung on a cross, ever had the sins of every person who would ever trust in Jesus placed on them. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me when the, our sins were placed on him, all of it, and the wrath of a holy God was poured out on him instead of us. He paid the price for us. And then he rose again, proving, proving to all the world that he is the son of God who can take away the sins of the world. In other words, if I can do that, rise again, I can do this, forgive sin. Forgive sin. Constantly in the Gospels even, you'll find him healing someone and then saying, your sins be forgiven. And the, the religious leaders would say, who do you think he is to forgive sin? They never got worked up about the healings. Yeah, whatever. But they were offended regularly that he would forgive sin. Our biggest problem is, how can I be forgiven? His resurrection proves he's the son of God. If he can rise again, he can forgive sin. That's what he came to do. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's a great verse that just captures the essence of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, Son of God, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That we 
might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the great exchange. He takes our sin. We get his righteousness as if it's ours. When you put your trust in Jesus, it's way better than, oh, now my sin record is cleared. And God says, wow. Oh, it's better than that. The sin record that was against you is cleared. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who fully pleased the Father, is applied to your account as if it was yours. So that when God the Father looks on you, he sees the righteousness of his son. That's a game changer. That changes your identity. You don't go around wondering, does he love me? He loves me. He loves me not. I failed today. I cussed today. I got angry today. Oh, I guess he doesn't love me. Hogwash. Christianity teaches when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, your sin record is removed and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is yours forevermore. Oh, hallelujah. As we sang, what a savior. What a savior. What a savior. And yeah, we're still a mess. But he begins to work on us from the inside out by his Holy Spirit, changing for his glory. But we'll never be perfect. It'll still look messy all the way to heaven. But when you stand before a holy God, only one thing will matter. Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? You may still have all kinds of weaknesses and failings. But as you stand there, Jesus will stand by you and say, she's mine, Father. Can you imagine that? She's mine. Consider what you think about me. Think that way about her. Enter. You're getting into heaven, not based on you or anything about you, but based on Jesus who does not change. That'll give you joy and peace and hope right now. Right now. And so as I close, I want to ask you to bow your heads. Because I want to ask you, what about you today? What about you? I'm not asking, are you religious? Do you go to church? You're here. I'm not asking, have you ever been sprinkled, baptized, joined a church, signed a card, shook a hand? I'm asking you, have you ever put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? And said, save me. Have mercy on me. And here's what I hear sometimes. Oh, Brad, I just wish I had that kind of faith like you do. I want to push back a little bit. Every human being has faith. It's just a question of where you're placing your faith. And that's the problem. Absence of faith is never the problem. It's the presence of something else you are already tenaciously locked onto and trusting in. Might be yourself, might be some other system or hope you've got in this world, but every human being has faith or you couldn't keep going. It's just, what are you putting your faith in? Come to Christ. Let go of whatever it is you've been locked onto as your hope. And I'm asking you to trust, not in something better, someone better. Jesus, who lived and died and rose again for you. If you'd like to become a Christian today and you'd say, I'm ready to make that decision, to believe, to surrender my life, to give my life to Jesus and say, yes, Lord Jesus, 
then just pray this simple prayer after me. You don't have to pray out loud. You don't have to walk this aisle. You don't have to grab my hand. You don't have to give any money to this church. God sees your heart. Just pray this prayer. Oh, God, I know I am a sinner. I could never save myself. I need more than inspiration. I need a Savior to do for me what I could never do myself. To please you perfectly. I put my faith in Jesus now and I surrender my life to Jesus as Lord. Come into my life. Forgive me. Make me clean. Begin to work on me from the inside out. Give me that hope and that purpose for living in this broken world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.